<laughs> Thank you, Bang. Dust, huh? There's some theological statement. I decided to pick up the ram. Um, friends, it is so good to be here with you. You have no idea. Grace and peace I bring you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay right there. Since the time I left this region five years ago, you need to know that I have carried you, this church family, in my heart. I have to confess, as my husband's over there and Lynn O'Grady is over there, that I've had a 15-year love story with this community of faith. Truly, so it's very meaningful to be here, because otherwise I'd be listening to my friend Jeff in the other service. <laughs> um, Jeff and I go back probably two decades, and we both arrived in Southern California within three months of each other, giving us the opportunity to walk together through our installations and celebrations. Becca Moran, now Bateman, I spoke at an ordination at her installation. Skip, there's not much I'm going to say about Skip, but he's been around my life for 15 years. Um, and then there's Bong, right, who you've heard about. Bong was one of the first persons I met when I moved to California from the East Coast the first time, because I will be back. Um, and there are countless leaders in this church that have lifted me up, served on personnel, uh, served on boards, and given vision to the church. I'm not even going to name them because there are too many to name here today. Now, before beginning my message, you might be wondering about this kind of raspy, sultry voice. Well, just as I was getting on the plane to go back to the East Coast, I was diagnosed with what they call vocal dysphonia. So the dysphonia has unfortunately taken away one of my favorite gifts, singing. Oh my gosh, what great music you all have. How can you sit there without moving? What extraordinary music. Thank you. <laughs> extraordinary way to begin worship. Anyway, but I refuse to let the vocal dysphonia silence me or make me want to shrink away from being able to use my voice at a time when the voice of believers truly does matter. So as I considered what I might share with you this morning, I was led to the call of Moses in Exodus and then God's call upon Isaiah. So the story has been told countless times throughout history. The Prince of Egypt, uh, if you're older, uh, Charlton Heston, right, uh, playing Moses, parting the Red Sea. But perhaps you've imagined Moses in your own way, out in the fields, no longer in the court of the Pharaoh, minding his flock and, frankly, his business, content thinking, life is really OK. But then it happens, God breaks in. Burning bush and all, right? Disrupting the calm by compelling Moses to see and understand what is happening outside his little life bubble. 
In this moment, with just five verbs, I love these five verbs. I think this is our call. Because with these five verbs, we get profound insights into the heart of God. Hence, into the call to the church. If you recall the reading, God declares to see and observe the misery of humanity. God hears the cries and knows the suffering of the people that he loves. God's heart is so deeply moved that he's not just a spectator. God says, I have come down as a foreshadow of the ultimate coming down of Jesus. God comes down, however, not simply to hang out and wallow in their pain, but to deliver them. I am breaking in to bring them out of that place. Now, I'm not going to get into all this Hebrew stuff, but the one Hebrew word here, kumi, means to restore. God is saying to Moses, I have entered this space so that my people might be restored, that they might be renewed, that they might rise up above all that has imprisoned them, both physically and spiritually. And I am calling you, Moses, out of your little life bubble to serve as my ambassador. Moving fast forward, I am calling you, church, to serve as my ambassador. Friends, I am feeling the presence of a burning bush here today, Presbyterian and all. God is breaking into the complacency, calling us out of our comfort bubbles in order to rise with God's resurrection spirit and lead others to the hope and light of Jesus. Isn't this our call? That's why you're here today, right? Isn't this our call? To allow our hearts, weary as they might be, to be touched, to observe and name the misery of men and women who probably are wearing lots of masks around us. So where is it that you hear God saying to you, rise up from where you are? Rise up. God calling you, prompting you to be an ambassador of restoration beyond the space of this sacred place. And friends, if you're not sure of the cries and the suffering, if your bubble is that contained, pick up your cell phones and look at the newsfeed. For every one story of hope, there are countless other stories reminding us of the brokenness around us. Amen? Oh, you respond. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> this oversaturation of negative news has impacted the spirit of our society, threatening to entomb the hope we claim, bringing in cynicism and despair. Even when we catch our breaths, the news feed insists and presses in on us, reminding us of yet another senseless act of violence of natural disasters that defy our understanding or our perceived ability to help. And then amplify this by the new normal on social media that has now unleashed the now acceptable language that, of hate, polarization, and violence. 
Growing up, if I said I hated something, that wouldn't be so cool, right? Now it's just what it is. That language tempts us away from the language of hope, compassion, and possibilities. And it encourages us to hide behind our screens and our thumbs. And that's just a public narrative. Let's add our own stuff to this. Those fears that cause us to put on the masks, the concerns carried in our hearts, broken relationships, illness, addiction, unemployment, depression, and the list goes on and on and on, threatening to entomb us over and over again, thrusting us into despair and darkness. But as we've already heard, these moments of pain and loss are as much a part of our lives as is breathing. No one escapes. It's an equal opportunity moment. But the question becomes for our journey in this life, how do you and I choose to respond? How do we rise up? How do you and I restore when we feel exhausted and powerless at the mercy of other people, expectations and circumstances? I suspect you recognize these kinds of moments in your own life. When we just don't know, as individuals or as a church, if we can find the strength to rise up and take one more step to respond in a manner that reflects the very faith we really want to claim. It's to this kind of despair and exhaustion that the prophet Isaiah calls out to the people in exile centuries after the exodus from Egypt, some 700 years before Jesus comes. The identity and destiny of God's children is again defined or controlled by forces outside themselves, this time the Babylonians. In Isaiah, in that little line, the exiled can now return home to their beloved Jerusalem. But when they return, what they find is different than the images of home they had carried and dreamt about in their hearts. You know, as I was getting on a plane three days ago, I was doing California dreaming. Well, consider, as they were returning, they were doing Jerusalem dreaming. But what they find instead is no dream. Their temple's destroyed. There's so much to rebuild. And then for those who never had to leave Jerusalem, they were eagerly awaiting the return of those who had been forced to leave. Well, they didn't. their dream didn't happen either. They had envisioned a great return that everybody who left would be coming back. But many chose to stay in Babylon. It had been 70 years. They had built lives, married Babylonians. There was no great return. It is to this disappointed people that Isaiah says, arise, your light has come. Get up, you tired people. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Do not surrender. Isaiah is saying, I know that this might not look like what you were hoping but it is precisely here, in that space of ambiguity, where you are called to rise. In essence, Isaiah is calling the question, 
choose. You have to choose in favor of believing in the faith and grace of the Lord or choose to place confidence in the powers of the world. Those words echo to us today. Rise up, choose in favor of the grace and love of the Lord or place our confidence and hedge our bets in the ways of the world. I am so grateful for this message, but it is disruptive and inconvenient. And there are days when I am so weary, where frankly the darkness can seem more like a sanctuary than a tomb. Perhaps you've been there. But this message convicts me and encourages me forward. How can my spirit rise? How do I lead a people when I can be overwhelmed by the images of suffering and the cries of pain around me? Well, several years ago, a young writer of Puerto Rican descent, which you may have heard of him now, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who like me is a New Yorican. That means you're born in New York, of Puerto Rican ancestry, all right? Come with me here. <laughs> well, he won his first Tony about eight years before he won his second Tony for the musical In the Heights. It was the first Broadway production that spoke to the experience of the Latino community in the United States. It was kind of our equivalent to allegiance for the Japanese American story, but it was on Broadway. The drama takes place in a neighborhood called Washington Heights in northern Manhattan, and Miranda weaves together the smell of coffee. Oh, I love that smell. The sounds of music with the universal themes of family, of community, and hope, as he tells the story of this multicultural Latino community in that neighborhood, of people who feel powerless before the cultural reality around them. Well, at the center of the story, we have Abuela Claudia, Grandma Claudia, who, like many immigrants, came to the US as a child. Her mother came from Cuba and worked cleaning houses in order to raise and care for, their, for her little girl. Now elderly, Abuela Claudia serves as a link between the heritage of the past and the movement needed to go forward. Her words of wisdom are central to the musical. She says, Ay, paciencia y fe. Ay, paciencia y fe. Translated means patience and faith. But it's a patience and faith that should not be confused with passivity. It's a patience and faith grounded in intentional and determined action. These words shape the spirit of those who live in that community, whether they're the workers in the hair salon, the owner in the grocery store, car service owner. She is the emotional anchor of people worrying about college tuition, about will they have enough to retire. Just coming in today, those conversations happen with me, and I haven't been here very long, of not being able to find a job that would appropriately sustained family, right? Like a queen on her throne, she sits on the steps of her tenement building, offering these words to everyone. No pare, sigue, sigue. See, I can't say those words and not move. 
No pare, sigue, sigue. That means don't stop. Keep going. Keep pressing on. These words inspire action and hope for those in the family. But for me, that patience and faith, that keep pressing forward, is reflected in the story of my family. My late parents, my dad with an eighth grade education and my mom with sixth grade education, came to the mainland from Puerto Rico. And yes, Puerto Rico is part of the USA. Um, my dad fought in the Korean War. His point of entry to our nation was Gary, Indiana. And my mom worked at a factory gluing together party hats, um, saving her pennies to bring her three sisters over. And her point of entry was New York City. Three daughters later, at the age of 40, my dad got an epiphany. He left his job of 20 years, went to college and seminary. My mom would leave the life she knew and loved. I was 16. I thought they had lost their minds when they moved to the state of Maine, where my dad, with his first language being Spanish, studied Greek and Hebrew and English. And my mom would work at the seminary cafeteria, feeding the hungry souls of the seminarians. I remember her talking about baking cookies with no guarantee of what would happen at the end. They would rise up. Where the world might have contained them, where the world would have said no because of who they were, language, accent, you name it, they could hear the voice of God saying, rise up. Rise up. Your light has come. And my dad did become a Presbyterian minister and created a dysfunction in my DNA because I went to seminary at 39. <laughs> Their witness humbles me, and it encourages me how they courageously allowed God's voice to break into the complacency of comfort of where they lived. They chose faith over the messages of the worldly powers around them that are pretty strong powers. But I know that there are many stories like this one right here. We heard one today, right? Marked by moments when you felt the world entombing your spirit. Amen? Amen? Amen. But you found the courage to rise up, to get up and go on. These are the stories and spirit that need to be exuded and embraced over and over and over again. The need to fuel our witness, your witness, so that we can be a countercultural narrative in this world. I encourage you to remember who are those prayer warriors, those spiritual warriors who by their very being reached their hand out to you and said, I love you. I am with you. So friends, as you consider this new program, you're right. The next 525,600 minutes, count them, it's a song. <laughs> As you consider those minutes, I remind you that the church today, across all traditions, finds itself at a historical and critical crossroads yet again. Yet again, this is not new. 
These crossroads, however, are defined when Christians of all backgrounds, cultures, language, races, traditions, come face to face with a fork in the road that compels us as believers to choose a way forward. The way of holy defiance or the way the silence of comfort and cultural complicity. But this isn't new. Throughout history, humanity has had to choose between silent complicity or the ways of Jesus. Recently, we went to Iceland, and I had no clue that the Icelandic people were the slaves of the Nordic people. So between our own history, right, of slavery, of what we do to one another, we are called, we are at this fork in the road, I believe, because the truth is that we Christians are not unlike our ancestors who were exiled to Babylon. We develop a high tolerance for coexistence with the culture around us. We love our comfort bubbles. We don't like getting messed with. It frankly takes a lot for the church universal to hear the cries, to see the pain, and to choose between faith and grace and the powers of the world. It takes more than it should for us to respond, to see, to hear, to know, to enter, to deliver, to rise up, to claim our counter-cultural voice. But here is the good news about the church. When the church does claim its voice, when the church does speak, when we break our silence, history has proven, whether it be in Germany or in the United States or around the world, when we speak, the mountains can be moved. So I believe this is one such moment. This is our moment, right? For a time such as this, we have been placed on this earth at this time for this witness, to join God on the journey to respond to the cries of suffering. This isn't about popular politics. Just so you know, I'm a strong independent. This is about politics. This is about reclaiming the mind and heart of God. Dr. Martin Luther King called the church the conscience of the state. Isn't that great? So what is our corporate conscience telling us today? I believe it's telling us that something is not right, that something is broken, and that something must change, and that we, however reluctant we might be, not unlike Moses and our ancestors, we as a Jesus people are called to be part of that change in the smallest of ways, one by one, to make the biggest of impact. God is breaking into our lives, calling us to rise up and be agents of transformation. So to wrap this up, using a little bit of the tempo of the Broadway musical, Hamilton, I'm going to invite you when I do this that you say, rise up. Don't leave me hanging, please. You will traumatize me. <laughs> so using that temple, we'll go, rise up. When we're living on our knees, we rise up. Tell our sisters that we're going to rise up. Tell our brothers that they have to rise up. So may we rise up like colorful kites adorning the sky, understanding, as Winston Churchill reminds us, that kites fly highest against the wind, not with the wind. So may we rise up. May we rise up.
against the winds of culture and be church, boldly growing children of all ages in the ways of grace and love of Jesus. May we in holy defiance and move beyond the walls of this sacred space and take those very teachings into the world. May we rise up in hope, giving voice and presence to those who cannot speak and stand for themselves. May we, resisting the epidemic of senseless violence and hate that frames our public discourse. Finally, may we, in the hope and power of the resurrection, trusting in the Holy Spirit that compels us forward into a new life. This is our call. Our no pare sigue, sigue, as we together rise from our knees and our pews, standing for a world that Jesus wants of mercy, love, and justice. May we boldly rise together against whatever brokenness is around us that keeps us from God and one another. Maya Angelou reminds us in her poem, Still I Rise, and I'll end with this. You may trod me in the very dirt. She didn't say dust like Bong said, but you may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I will rise. Rise up, San Marino, because your light has come. Amen.